For all you podcast listeners who are interested in the horse's foot, the hoof, shoeing, trimming, we've negotiated a great deal. This is with the Farrier's Journal, which is a journal that comes out in seven European languages. As long as you sign up, uh, you get a free copy. There's no commitment to stay there. Do it now. You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Sponsorship for today's podcast is from Hoof Care Essentials Foundation partner, Purcell Farrier Supply. In this podcast, I'm interviewing Jim Ferry and Mark Trussler. Uh, Jim Ferry was my second podcastee, but he always has so much knowledge about shoeing, training apprentices, competitions. I took the opportunity to interview him again, and especially since it was the first time I was able to catch up with him after he had his heart attack at the International Hoof Care Summit. Mark Trussler was also there. Uh, for reasons that will be explained in the podcast. And Mark is an ex-apprentice of mine, first apprentice um, that I have recorded for a podcast. And he'd just moved to Scotland, so we sort of explore that as well. Both of them I asked about their experiences as clinicians, because Jim's been a clinician for a long time and Mark has just got going, although he has spoken and uh, run clinics outside the UK already. And later on, we look at the exams and examining. Anyway, sit back and enjoy this latest podcast. I've just come up the A1 and uh, after a four hour drive arrived at Morpeth, which is on the northeast coast of England, a couple of hours south of the Scottish border. And I'm doing a clinic here for the L Northumbria uh, veterinary practice along with two of my favourite colleagues, Jim Ferry and Mark Trussler. And so I had to take the opportunity to record a podcast before we go out and have a pint. So I just want to uh, refresh um, uh, with Jim Ferry because Jim was, I think, the second podcast I ever did. I hope all of you go back to the start and listen to that one. Uh, but in the meantime, Jim, when did you first start as a farrier? I started with my father in 1969. Uh, I was 14 and he asked me to go and get the forge out of the garage and light it. And it was a, a hand turn, we called it a hand core forge, a hand turn forge in the garage. And I had no clue what to do, but I found some uh, sticks and a fire lighter and lit this forge and turned this handle and blew air into it. And uh, we, got, we got a fire going and he came down and with two bits of metal in his hand and pulled a box out of the garage and started making two Clydesdale fall shoes. And that was my introduction to firing. And you're still at it, aren't you? Some 50... Three years later, yes. Yeah. 
and uh, you had a bit of a health scare, didn't you? Actually, uh, Mark and I were there in America, and you had, you must be uh, about the first farrier or the only farrier ever to have a heart attack on stage in front of a thousand other farriers. It, it was, yes, it was. I did have a heart attack in Cincinnati while doing the first part of my lecture, and I'm a bit embarrassed about it, but <laughs> thankfully. I had no control over it, and thankfully the surgeons in the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati were excellent and stuck a stent in and managed to save my life. Well, good. Mark and I were the first people to see you after that, <coughs> two hours later, yeah. and I went in the room thinking I was going to see Jim there looking grey and lying half covered with a blanket or something, and you sat up in bed and smiling at us. Yeah, I, I did feel... The very, miracles very... of modern... Medicine, really? It was, really. I did feel very fortunate. and They told me at the time that I had six minutes to live before it was too late, and that was a bit disconcerting. And my heart was only working at 28%, and that upset me too, but I've had subsequent scans, and my heart's back to normal 60%, and I've had no other issues, so uh, I'm just taking each day as it comes. And, and you told me a few months ago you're shooing as many horses now as you were in your 30s. Um, yes, I am. No, I don't want to, I might add that, but, and I pick and choose my clients, but I'm showing them easier than I ever did in my 20s and 30s. Uh, and I think that's due to experience, and I also think it's due to the modern shoes that are available and the, the modern tools and just making life a bit easier. Grinders are great things, they're way better than <laughs> rasps, yeah. So, anyway, I will turn to the younger... <laughs> member of our three-man team for tomorrow, Mark Trussler. Welcome to this podcast, Mark. Thank you. Nice to be back. So uh, you've just heard about um, Jim's brilliant apprenticeship. I wonder if you <laughs> could tell the audience about your brilliant apprenticeship. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit loaded, isn't it, by you? Because obviously being my approved training farrier, I've got to oh. say the right thing, haven't I? Have you forgot that? You forgot I, that bit? Just keep saying the right thing. <laughs> So, but you, okay, so so you came from Liverpool, which is on the northwest side of England, uh, but you came down to me in Newmarket and did your apprenticeship there, starting when? January the 6th, 1997, was my first day okay. with you, well, not with you, with, with your fame. Yeah, and you did your apprenticeship there and you passed your diploma with very good marks, if I remember. Yeah, an A and a B. A and a B, you must be sick about that B. Uh, yeah, because I think I remember you saying at the time I was pretty close to getting two A's. Um, yeah, you were all so, right. Yeah, so we, we got there in the end. You peaked early in your career, really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then since then you, you moved up to Lincolnshire and you were there for how long? Mm, nearly 20 years. Met your wife? Yep. Two children? Yep. And now you've moved to Scotland, haven't you? Yes. <clears throat> in January? Yeah, thanks to Jim. Actually, we were in the process of kind of just deciding really what we wanted out of the next sort of 20 years of life. And Lincoln was very good to us in lots of ways. Business was well established, but we pined for the mountains, really, and the outdoors. It's a place where we love to be and the kids are now of an age where they can kind of do a lot more as well. And we just, we were kind of looking for something a bit different and it was after being with Jim in America, uh, Cincinnati, and going through that, and we kept in touch after then, 
um, it was a conversation really with Jim that triggered off the thought that actually Scotland might be an option. And so in the end it was quite a quick decision. We decided in the summer after a few trips up, stayed with Jim and Hazel and looked around the area and we said let's go for it. So I, I, I just want to confirm this though that you looked at Scotland in the summer <laughs> yeah, and moved up there and how was January? Yeah, it was good. We moved at the end of January, so it was fine. <laughs> uh, to be fair, the weather, people say it's really wet and cold, and I don't think it's hugely different to what, what we've experienced before down south, so we can cope with a bit of colder weather, that's fine. I feel more comfortable in colder climates rather than being too hot, um, but the landscape and the view that you have driving around every day, the friendly hospitality nature that you get in Scotland is... Really, really nice. And you're locating somewhere between Glasgow and Edinburgh, eh? In that sort uh, of area? Stirling, just west of Stirling. The old capital? Yeah, so between Stirling and the Trossachs. A okay. national park on the west coast near Loch Lomond, and yes, yeah, good. Really, really good. All sounds very exotic. Yeah. Okay, let, let's just move on a little bit because we're here doing a clinic uh, and lectures for qualified farriers and... There's a lot of that goes on in the world now. But what I wanted to ask both of you was, uh, where was the best place that you've done a clinic in your lives? Okay, we'll ask Jim first. Probably the most exotic place was uh, on the Gold Coast in Australia. I had, I had a lovely holiday in a place called Hayman Island and then we drove down to a place called Rockhampton and I did a clinic and judged the Australian Horseshoeing Championships. So that's the furthest I've gone, and probably the most exotic, but probably the nicest and well organi best organised clinic would be the Hoof Care Summit at Cincinnati. I've spoke there twice and uh, really made to feel part of the family when I go there. It's, it's a lovely place. Yeah, it's a great place for, a, for an audience. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, big audience there, I think... Um, it was down a bit this year, but I know the year you spoke, I think it was about 1,500 people there. And, and I wasn't joking when I said, that room, when it's full, is a, is a thousand yeah. barriers. So it's, yeah. it's a really great experience. And when you're sweating and not feeling very good. It's <laughs> yes. Easy, it's no, well, I don't more. suppose you cared where you were <laughs> at the time. Yeah. So, so what about you then, Mark? I know, I know you haven't had this vast experience, but you have been to some nice places, and you've, yeah. and you've done you've done educational events in this country. And yeah, I think um, the I don't know if I would say I've, I've, I've a favourite. I've got good memories uh, that stand out from each one. Um, I think before COVID came, the last one I did, if I remember correctly, was Finland with you. Yeah. And we had a really good time. We had a real good laugh. Maybe a couple of too many sherbets uh, one of the evenings. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember, you know, being picked up at the airport, having a blowout on the side of the motorway, and I had to change the tyre. And <laughs> just, yeah, but also the welcome and um, the way the course ran it, that was really good. Again, I remember doing a clinic in Sweden, and um, we were doing a shoeing. We just, on the spur of the moment, we did a... Uh, shoemaking competition late on I think it only started at like 10 in the evening after a couple of beers again there's a familiar theme but again equally Cincinnati was quite memorable for a number of reasons and obviously some of the relationships and friendships uh, I made 
from there uh, have also gone on. So I, it's hard to pick a favourite. They were all quite unique um, and enjoyable in their own way, really. And I, I would hope to, to do some more. I'm sure you will. Well, yeah. I know you're booked for Sweden, aren't you? We've yeah. got this one tomorrow. Yeah. Which I'm told sold out in days, really, didn't it? And yeah. um, I think yeah. they're, they're, they've got a, what I'd call is a good problem and that they're not quite sure if they've got enough room. Yeah. Yeah. But that that's all right. It's yeah. it's uh whoever wants to turn up to do a clinic and there's five people there waiting to see, you know. <laughs> so 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 that's really good. Um what I was also gonna ask both of you is um what would your ideal clinic setup be? In other words, first, what, what do you think the best way a clinic should run? The best way a clinic should run the obvious way is is theory first, practical second. I've been fortunate enough to run. Uh, yeah, you used to do a big one, didn't you? Yeah, and I, I have been fortunate enough to run probably dozens. Um, and what we the theme the theme we had was theory in the morning in a lecture comfortable hall, lunch, and then move to a practical environment and do practical. And those that just wanted the theory, i.e., like vets or or physios or, or academics, they could just leave and, and go. They've, they've had their bit and then the practical could could be at wherever it was kept. That that seemed to work for us. Well, well I'm, I'm pretty much on that. I actually say for teaching anything that's practical, in simple terms, the best way is explain it, demonstrate it, and then supervise it on somebody else. Now, we're not going to... well. I don't think we're going to have time tomorrow for people to try a bit of hands-on. But for me, that's the perfect clinic, is, is understanding, seeing, should we say, uh, hopefully the um, best case or, or best practice, and then having a go with, with intervention. It's not, and of course, it's all to do with numbers as well, isn't it? That yeah. th There's only so many people that you can work with and... and Around a horse, there's only about four or five people that can see what's going on. So I think the best events I've done is where they've had, where it's been live, but they've had a big screen behind and you have somebody with a camera. You, you have to be on the ball because you're doing your job and you have to tell the cameraman what's important. And then those have worked, uh, they've worked really well. Some of, some of the best ones I did were the Washable Company Farriers Hoof Balance Clinics in the 80s. Mid eighties yeah. through yeah. to two thousand, yeah. and I was fortunate enough to be. I learned more as a tutor on those courses than the I could have ever relate to you. It was uh, it was a pleasure to teach on those. Well, I was a student on the very first one, and I ended up teaching on it. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, they 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 changed a lot of things in the UK. Um, that for all the gizmos that we like to show, for all the fancy pads and shoes, actually assessing a horse and knowing how to trim the foot appropriately, it's almost going to be ninety percent of the job, isn't it? Yeah, really. Well, that that I forgot to mention that when you said where was the best place I I I, I taught clinics, but the Washable Company courses for me, and this is not necessarily plugging the Washable Company courses like that where it's. 16 people, four tutors, five yeah. tutors, mm. uh, and and uh, they certainly, the, the, the people that attended them certainly got 
value for money for sure. They did with um, four students to to one tutor. I mean, when we did the thing in Finland. Mark was a little bit shocked in that I said, "Oh no, no, we we have eight uh, students each, and you got to run round and and I had a horse that played up, and they could only shoot it in the stables, which meant I'd got about a hundred yards between <laughs> my two groups. Certainly helped get me fit. Yeah. I've I've also been lucky enough to be part of a team doing the foot balance clinics for the Westwood Company, and they are great, actually. They, you know, because I think the four of you that are doing leading on each horse, you know, it's it's great to connect, and you you kind of become friends, I think, through it, and you learn and you share ideas, and yeah, I'm a lot newer at this kind of thing, but um, yeah, it's really good. They're really really good courses. So tell me, you you are still travelling, aren't you? Because I know you've got uh, a do for vets in the northeast of America, haven't you? Yeah, I've been asked to speak at the North American Equine Practitioners Conference in Saratoga in late September. Uh, and that, that's come through the webinar I did for you in November. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I didn't know if I would be confident enough to go and speak in America again after the last episode when I was ill, but... I've t taken the bull by the horns and I'm going to do it and uh, looking forward to it. So I'm still, and I'm still teaching at, uh, I've got some talks to do at local levels and I've just done a laminitis talk in Perthshire and I've got a couple of sterling and run about there to do later on in the year. So no, I'm still, I'm still talking. Good. Well, uh, of course, uh, Jim and I are both retired from the examination board. And Mark is now really getting going. How long have you been examined? Five years? Yeah, about that, yeah. Five years. So really getting your feet under the table. So I thought it would be an idea to have a discussion of the exam system in the UK. But what about exams in general? Do we need exams? Do farriers need exams? Don't they either blame horses or make them better? I think they need, I think there needs to be a a clear moment where you test yourself both academically and practically. You don't test yourself, do you? Somebody else tests you. Well, you're testing yourself, but you, you, you've got to demonstrate your ability. Yeah. And I think that there needs to be a standard, and, and you need to prove that. You know, at the end of the day, we're dealing with live animals. We need to ensure that their welfare is well looked after. Okay. And as an examiner, you know, we're marking to a standardised kind of format but ultimately as one senior examiner said to me he said you know we we have to know that that candidate is safe to go out and shoe horses the next day and I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind obviously we have the standard and the standard means if you reach that standard then you are safe to go out and practice and make a living and um, and there's nothing more satisfying than actually seeing a good apprentice come through and do a great job in the exam and I think as all as examiners you'll remember top level jobs um, they stand out and it's it's really there's nothing more rewarding than giving good marks but does it take four years to get to basic ability to pass a diploma I personally think yes it does and and I think it shows in that you know there's there's still candidates coming and struggling to get through after four years 
Um, you would have passed yours after three years. Would I? Yeah. It's the first time I told you that. <laughs> what do you think, Jim? Uh, I think that the, the best thing that happened, it, it, it was during my time as chairman of the exam board, was we changed uh, our standard setting days. We changed going from marks to achieve fail or pass to setting the standard and then awarding marks to yeah. suit the standard. I think the way it's usually put, which it's well put, is that the marks should reflect what the examiners think about the standard, not the other way around. Not the other way around. It's exactly that. And, and I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that it was, it was during my time that we, we managed to achieve that. So somebody that is a grade C gets a 60 plus and somebody that's a grade D gets a 50 plus and the mark reflects that. So there's not uh, a like 59, 60. Oh, oh, I've got 59 and, and I should have passed because I did this. <laughs> You're either a, this, to the standard, above the standard, below the standard or... Yeah, well but I can remember examiners even marking somebody and then being surprised that they'd passed. Passed, yeah. Because they weren't making the marks reflect what they thought. Yes. They were just going by this, oh, that's... So, and, and that's something 60. good that has come out the off call yeah. standard setting days and, and I fully support the standard setting days and uh, although I'm, I'm retired now from, from examining I, I thought that, that uh, my, myself, my brother and, and a retired examiner Sandy Beveridge and we were instrumental in as a core we were asked to provide some of the practical specimens for the standard setting days and and uh, I think we've managed to achieve that and, and hopefully the, the newer examiners have kept up and taken it on. Well, I, I remember looking at um, 21 candidates one time. Uh, actually, it was an exam in Australia. And three examiners, and there was only... And, and the, this is the written work, but five questions, so times 21, whatever that is, 105. There was only two questions where those three examiners we're not within 5% of each other mm. on the whole mark. So so it does work with standard setting. But actually, it, the answer to the question I asked you, Mark, was about, about well, why don't, can they do it in three years, is the point of an apprenticeship is there's also the experience that people yeah. gain. And we, we know you can never in four years get a whole lifetime's experience, but you'd hope if you're with the right training barrier, mm. that in a, over a period of four years they see a large amount of the problems and things they're going to be confronted by the rest of their life. And so, so I think there's the sort of technical ability yeah. and there's knowledge, yeah. but there's also experience, isn't there? And, yeah. And, and, and good apprenticeships. Yeah. That all, fourth year is kind of being allowed to go and find your own feet a little bit and gain that experience without being completely unsupported yeah. like you are once you're qualified, essentially. Yeah. And I think that's the whole point. So really, yeah, when you're talking about it should be diploma level after three years. So, yeah. Well, yeah. that's what I always mm. used to want mm. with my apprentices. But um, for that reason. Anyway, uh, let's move on to the associate. So uh, the associate exam uh, was begun in 1907. And the idea was that we now have a basic exam for farriers, which we'd had, I think, for 10 or 12 years by then. How do we encourage farriers to use skills and knowledge to work on conditions of the foot and the limb? And that's really, that was 
thought, well, what is that, 115 years ago. But I actually think it still needs to fulfil that, that principle. We might have moved on in some of the techniques, but still the principle is the same there, isn't it, for the associate? Yeah, I think so. I think as well it, it gives you something to aim at so that you don't just pass your diploma and stand still. Yeah. It was, uh, it was actually speaking at your conference gym up in Glasgow and I was talking to a very well-qualified, well-known vet and he'd come up to, to speak and we were having breakfast. He remembered me from uh, being an apprentice in Newmarket. He said, I believe people only move forward or backward. He said, I don't think anybody stays still and stays at a, a level. And I think from my own experience, Achieving the associate was great, but I definitely felt if I didn't continue to move forward and have something to aim at, then I would have struggled and just drifted. And I think that's the thing, it's, it's a great goal to aim for, for your associate. I, I, I've seen so many farriers that the associate, or studying for the associate, has been a real, a new lease of life to them. Yeah. Given them, you know, they might have been shooing 15 years by then. Yeah. And they need something to give themselves a little bit more enthusiasm for the job. And I, I think it's like horseshoeing competitions. It, it's not the competing that makes you better, it's the practice. Yeah. And the actual studying for the associate yeah. is where you gain the skills that are going to benefit you from having the exam. Yeah, yeah. Simon, yeah. you've always said, if I was a client looking for a farrier, would I have a farrier that's never tried to go for their associate, or would I try somebody that's even tried and maybe failed, who would I choose, I'd always choose the that's one that's tried. Right, yeah, I always say, yeah. better to be a farrier that studied for it and failed than a farrier that's never studied yeah. for it. And that makes a lot but of sense. But he hasn't failed, he's just not achieved the yeah, standard. Exactly. Yeah, 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 well that's well put. But it's like you've just said, Jim, it's what they've learned along the way. Yeah. And actually, if they kept going, they maybe would get there, you know. So, can you see any need for improvements the associate? Currently, I think it's it's uh, it's not that long since there were some changes made. I think at the minute it's it's a very well set up exam, and I think if you are genuinely progressing in your kind of anatomy knowledge, but also your experience, I think it's it's quite an achievable exam. Yeah, and it's it's a great achievement to to get to. But I think sometimes it's it's slightly misunderstood, and I think it's in what way. Maybe there's a, there's a bit of a thought that it's, it's maybe slightly easier to achieve than, than it really is. It's, it's a tough exam, it's a tough step up from the diploma, it's a big step up. Yeah, and I don't think there's more than a 50% pass rate usually at any exam, is there? Well, I thought it was a higher, I thought it was 85% failure rate, I don't know if that's mm. quite correct. But I think that, you know, I remember I'm going for... The practical part, and in fact, I think Jim, you examined me for practical or theory. Well, I remember definitely one part. So you know, I, I, I examined you for the practical. Yeah, that's right. You must have here then. I was pretty intimidated. I remember that. But I remember being in the forge, and there was guys stood there with scruffy clothes on and boots that just didn't look. You know, they looked like they were completely falling apart. And I think at that level, you need it's the whole package. You're stepping everything up a level. And in your business day-to-day, -day, you're stepping it up, don't you think? Well, it's funny you should say that. Yeah, I do believe that. There's nowhere 
on the on the examiner's pad to mark down yeah. people poorly dressed, poorly presented. But you know, now you're a, you're a current examiner, and Jim and I are not. But the new uh, thinking, and it's not the company that's brought this in; it, it's the uh, Institute of Apprenticeships mm. that actually people will be judged in their in the exam by their appearance. Mm. How do you feel about that? I don't know whether... Well, you're going to have to do it. I know. I think marking somebody on their appearance is, is quite tough. Well, I think it's but their it's appearance and their demeanour and the yeah. way they act professionally. Yeah. I mean, are we trying to build a profession or not? Yeah, yeah I think we should, be. we should be and we should be striving. I think sometimes maybe people... You have sometimes very, very gifted people who the last thing on their mind is what they look like, but actually they're very gifted and they can do the job really, really well. And I think to penalise them because they maybe don't think about their appearance would... Yeah, but if they're told that before... Yeah, if they're they, given They the go to college. To, yeah. So if you were told that wearing a scruffy T-shirt is going to cost you Martin's in the diploma and you turn yeah. up at the diploma in a scruffy T-shirt, well, should you be surprised that... Yeah. No, you shouldn't be. But I think... But that doesn't deflect from what you do to that horse. Yeah, yeah. This is a this is a practical exam as yeah, a yeah. professional, yeah. And, and your scruffy t-shirt and yeah. how you apply a shoe to yeah. a foot. No, I know because we've all it becomes part reports. of the exam. Yeah, uh, it's the, the easiest part, isn't but, it? Yeah, but it is the easiest part, but it so, shouldn't reflect. No, because the other well, side, we've all seen those that turn up in a shiny suit or outfit, very polished, <laughs> but actually. The minute you test the knowledge, yeah. it's not there. So it goes both ways. Is this in inverse proportion to your ability, how smart you are? Because <laughs> I have noticed how smart you're dressed tonight. <laughs> Nearly as smart as you, eh? Not in your dress, o only in your brain, Mark. <laughs> okay, so so we've done the associate, and I know, I, I know you say, well, actually there was a new introduction this year, uh, was casting in the... Um, yeah. In the synthetic materials. Yeah. So there's always a little bit of under review and anything new that can be introduced. So let's move on to the fellowship. Now, not many barriers have the fellowship. I think even though there's been a little bit of a, what we say, a mini surge in the last 10 years, I still think it's under 60 uh, have the fellowship. So we are now 5% of the fellows in the world. Sitting in this, my pop-up studio, recording this podcast. So we should have a good view on the fellowship. Tell me, long time ago, Jim, what was the subject of your fellowship? Because you were taking your fellowship when I was taking my diploma. In uh... my, my fellowship thesis was on, on the biomechanics of laminitis. Okay. Um, it was all about the forces that were being applied down the limb, the driving force, the reciprocal force of the ground, the tearing force between the the laminae in the wall and why I would apply the shoe that I would apply to a horse with laminitis and it was pre pre heartburn I'd never heard of a heartburn no no it wouldn't have been because it was I, in 83 yeah I'd never heard of a heartburn and uh, I was going to apply a thin heeled set toe shoe on my laminitics because I was conscious of breakover I was conscious of increasing the pull on the deep flexor to decrease the driving force of the yeah. of the body weight, and uh, 
actually I haven't changed my mind that much since. No, no, it's the apart the from so. apart from the heart bar. Yeah. And the heart bar is obviously the go-to now, but applied with the same principles as I did my thesis on. Yeah. And you did yours, Mark, on foot balance. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, it was kind of related to confirmation. It was five case studies. Five case studies. So I was observing and monitoring foot balance due to a specific kind of... Yeah. And of course, most ball. most uh, candidates now, and even in your, shall we say, group, peer group, yeah. uh, were doing studies, but you still did the um, case studies. In other words, what I mean is they were doing a, a study where there was statistics... But yours was five case studies. I know it was, a, it was on a similar theme, wasn't it? Yeah, I did measure some things. I measured uh, like the surface area, the solar surface area of the foot, like from the beginning of a year, and then I monitored the shoeing and took photographs and measured them throughout the year and kind of compared beginning and end, um, but also measured the mediolateral imbalance uh, over that time as well. Okay, and is there, is there anything... Because it's not so long ago. Mm. 2016 seven? was well, yeah, seven years. And that's when I passed. Yeah, yeah. I think they did the the actual study was from about September 2014 through to okay. end of. So anything that you would change in that thesis now? Yeah, I think anything you want to share with us. <laughs> well, some of it's top secret, Simon. But um, I think certainly some of the ways that I that the. The methods, if you like, or the, the shoeing plans that I had and the, the, the way I would tackle some of the issues with some of the cases, I, I probably would change and, and do slightly different things now. Yeah, and I think that's because even though at that moment that was the best I could produce, yeah, and it was obviously to the standard and, and I got through the exam, it's that, that continual pro progression in your own understanding, your own practice, you try different things that come along, different ideas, and it's that constant looking to get more out of the situation. And also knowledge, world knowledge yeah. that you're yeah. able to access. That yeah. changes, doesn't it? Yeah. It moves on like you were saying about, you know, the heart bar. Yeah. So is there any improvements you would like to see to the fellowship exam then? I think in its current format, that's what opened it up for so many of us to come through in a relatively short space of time. I think at the minute it's it's well set up. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything that needs to be changed at the moment. Because one of the, the big changes that I like to think I was one of the people that helped push through was saying this is a communications exam. That you've got farriers that are very good technically, but how do they share that information? They share it by writing a thesis and they share it by lecturing. Yeah. But I was going to ask the question that... Um, Maybe we should be testing a uh, candidate's ability, should we say, to do an online lecture as well. Be easy to test. <laughs> the examiners could sit at home and listen to them. I think, I don't, I don't know that it makes that much difference between whether you do uh, an online style lecture or you do it in person. And I think ultimately standing in front of you know, examiners who, I have to say at the fellowship level, I felt there was a different atmosphere uh, between the examiners. I think there was a huge amount of respect from the examining teams. They just respected the fact you'd put yourself out there and, and you were having a go. And 
that that was slightly different to the associates. I think as well. Sometimes we've discussed, and, and I'd be interested in what you both think. But at, at the associate level, anatomy-wise, you probably will know you're at the same level fellowship-wise. But it's, it, the difference is being able to communicate that. Yeah. And that's what we say. Practically, it's definitely a step up again from the associate. But in terms of the anatomy and things like that, I don't know there's that different at associate to fellowship, well, but it's that ability to communicate it well. Yeah. And that's what you're looking for from a fellowship standard candidate. Would you yeah. do you think that's fair? Yeah, no, I, I think you're I think you're hundred percent right. I mean the the associate is the highest technical exam, so yeah. you should know the microanatomy. No, that, that was taken out of the the syllabus. What? Saying that it's the highest technical exam. Well, I still believe it's the highest technical okay. exam. Well, Practically, though, do you not think the fellowship is now? Practically, but I'm so, I'm, I meant ana anatomically. Yeah, yeah. You should know all was, you yeah. need to know yeah. by the time you get to the associate level, Yeah. if you pass that. So that's what I mean by the highest technical exam. Yeah. Practical-wise, yes, the fellowship is yeah. uh, just a step above. But uh, fellowship-wise, I, I think we've got the fellowship... Well, we're retired now, but I think the <laughs> fellowship is set up pre pretty good, and yeah. I'm proud to have got mine. And I don't, I don't think that the standard changed no, dramatically all from when from yeah. when we no, got it. And it yeah. hasn't. It was just, it was probably harder in your day and my day because we were pretty much on our own studying, we, and, we, we, and were, we were on our own, but. There was a day in my grandfather's day. He never got his fellowship. He got he got his AFCL, Associate Farrier of the College of London. It was, and uh, in those days you could do your AFCL and your FWCF at the same horseshoeing competition. Yeah, you could pass one in the morning and go and do the other one in the afternoon. Yeah, and uh, some people did that yeah. back in the nineteen twenty eight. I think <laughs> he got his. Yeah, well, imagine. my father was an AFCL as well. I have vague memories as a kid of him studying for it. So let's move on just a little bit. So we already said, Mark, that you've moved up to Scotland. Yeah. But and I'm I'm not saying it's for this reason, but there's a few from England are moving up and they're probably filling a gap because Scotland is not producing too many apprentices these days, is it, Jim? Scotland is struggling. At the minute, there's only four apprentices being produced in the whole of Scotland. There's 170 farriers, uh, of which are whatever percentage is going to retire in the next five to ten years. And uh, there's only currently four being trained, of which maybe one will qualify. So, and that's and, and we don't we don't do politics in this podcast, but that's basically because there's no training college in Scotland for farriers and the Scottish Government will not send the money south to Just, England yes. to train them. So basically uh, at the minute as far as I understand it an ATF has to do his train the trainer exam, get his forge, have his AWCF or his equivalent uh, Myers Co degree, set himself up as an ATF and pay the training fees for his or her apprentice which come to about seventeen and a half thousand, so, which is out of his own money, probably twenty five thousand yeah. dollars yeah. to tra to train his own opposition in yes. four years. Yeah, and uh, and I'm being probably outspoken here, but in ten years' time, I can see pressure from BHS and 
other horse uh, welfare bodies dictating that we have college-based training or university-based training. And, and take out the apprenticeship. And take out the apprenticeship. I'm not advocating it. No. But I can see it being forced upon mm. groups because otherwise people are we're going to go back to owners having to nail shoes on their own horses' feet or else bare, all horses are going to have to be barefoot and that'll be a welfare issue as well. Yeah, it does seem very short-sighted of the government. But, but at the minute what's happening is that the from whatever the demographics are, Scotland seems attractive to a lot of, of farriers that are already, some of them are semi-retired, got their base, made a bit of money enough to move, relocate to a quieter life, and they're moving north, and they're, they're filling the void that otherwise would be filled by newly qualified Scottish apprentices. Yeah. Uh, but when that void is filled, and there's no Scottish apprentices to take up the slack, then that's when I foresee a problem. Yeah. I guess the other issue, Jim, I think you've mentioned before, is actually just in terms of national teams. You know, if there's just not Scottish apprentices and Scottish no. farriers around, you know, the, the, the national team's going to suffer, and that's, yeah. that's a huge loss too. Yeah, you know, the, the, the bulk of Scottish apprentices are having to be trained in England. Yeah. The farriers that don't want to train apprentices on their doorstep for fear of them taking their work. And I know from my own experience that it doesn't matter. I trained uh, eight Irish apprentices, of which half of them stayed in this country. <clears throat> and I didn't deliberately train Irish. They were the best at, at the time. They were brilliant, brilliant apprentices. But you would assume that they might have gone to their homeland yeah. when they did, but they never. They, they stayed where they were. And, and, uh, and they've been a great asset to Scottish farriery. Or, or British fiery, because some of them are, are in England. So it doesn't matter where you pull them from. Yeah. So the Scottish fireers that are being trained in England are, are going to live there. They've been living there for four and a half years in their yeah. most formative year of their life, so they're going to love it there and stay. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's, that's it, the formative time of their life, and therefore yeah. they build up friendships and... Uh, and, and, and other things. So, yeah. yeah, some of us though, some of us have had such a rough time as an apprentice with certain types of training farriers that we have to just get away. Yeah, a long way, not We're, far enough away. Yeah, and then he catches up with us. You know, yeah, you know so, what I mean. Jim. I do. Yeah, yeah. You're doing your best. You're just not doing very well. Okay, we we've sort of um, it, it, I guess from from the comments is that you you've almost half covered this next note that I made, which is is our current training model good so is it a good model that you have an apprenticeship over four years that in that time you do about 23 weeks at college um, but you're with your training fairy most of the time and then you're taking the, an exam at the end is there an alternative model to that apart from the two year you're obviously not a fan of the two years at college and 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 if it's government funded you can bet it would take about three years from to suggest maybe it can be done in one the trouble is I, my brother and I always considered ourselves good ATFs. And we gave our... our uh, some of my ex-guys may be listening to this and say he's talking uh, nonsense, but we gave them a great practical grounding. And we, because we could, we let the college take the theory 
We didn't. I didn't want to teach them theory in one language, and then them have to go to college and learn another language in theory to pass their exam. So I never gave them virtually any theory, as in anatomical theory or or uh, shoeing theory. So we taught them the practical. But had I had we needed to, I would have taught them the anatomy, physiology, and I'd have done the whole package. So they wouldn't have had to go to college at all. So, in answer to your question, I think the college, for a good ATF, is not needed. Okay. But a lot of ATFs rely on the college to bring their apprentices up to scratch and then blame the college. And then they and the, the company blame the college when the, the apprentices fail their exam. Oh, it's look at the failure from Myers, Warwick, Hereford. Yeah. And and but personally I've never blamed the college. If I've only ever had one guy fail one module of an exam and that was he cut his ruler was just a bit He got a short, short. ruler. <laughs> Not long actually. <laughs> too long. It was too long and he failed on, on being a hind shoe too long. Do you, and, and that was one uh, thirty two. Do you, do you think, Jim, so that almost you were saying in a way you provided all the practical side of the apprenticeship and that was taken care of on the job with you and Alan and the theory side you relied on the colleges to do their bit. Do you think those ATFs, because there definitely are them ATFs out there, where they might sort out the theory but actually leave the practical to the colleges, do you think it still worked that way round as well as it did the way you did it? Well, Yeah that's interesting, yeah it may well do, yeah it has to, Yeah, it has to, but what I've always felt the colleges should never get the blame yeah. for apprentices not getting to standard. Yeah. I'm not using the word failing exams. No. Not reaching the standard. But there's three parties involved, aren't there? That's the thing we talk yeah. about a lot. You know, there's the apprentice and their responsibility to actually, you know, yeah. put every effort in and, and do what's required. There's the ATF, they yeah. have to do their part, and then there's the college to college, do their part. Yeah. And you need all of them in, the, in a successful together. candidate. Yeah. yeah. But you've said, Simon, before, if you've got at least two of them going well... You need well, two of those elements. You'll get uh, through. Yeah, but if there's only one working... Yeah, yeah, that's when you have the problems. Yeah. In so it, wor it worked for us, the way we did it worked for us, and I just let them go to college, do their theory. When they came back from college, we had a day, and then they applied their college practical learning to our work. And I would say, no, that's not working, this is how we do it. And then we'd go back to the way we did it. Um, for an instance, I, I had um, back the guys that went to Hereford loved Tommy Tommy Williams, bless him. He loved high nails, and I had. They would come back, and and when they come back the first the first morning, there would be nails screaming. You could plate them in the hair of the corner. So you had to part the hair. To and, uh, yeah. So that lasted for about one one set. Yeah. And then. Well, it's all right, those Welsh cobs, you can... Yeah, we yeah, came, back, can and we came like back to normal. and, and yeah. uh, But that that was... It worked for us for, for all those years. Well, do you think, because with COVID and they weren't going to college, they were getting online training. So would it be a model where they did their apprenticeship, they did online training for the knowledge part, and don't have to go off to college, or very little? That would, but uh, that would that would be... Converse to Mark's suggestion, the practical element of it. Well, if they're not 
getting practical if they're not training. Getting the pra- that would work for yeah. for my module, where I just yeah. needed them for theory. Yeah. But for the ATFs that are not providing the practical, I was lucky. Alan and I were practicing for international contests, yeah. world championships at Calgary, and and our apprentices were copying us. Yeah. And we gave them full access to the forge, tons of coal, as much steel as they wanted, and. What I learned from very early days was I didn't want to put on any of the shoes that they made. When they made shoes at college, at, at home, they were specimen shoes. So they very, very, very rarely made shoes for feet. Yeah. Except when we brought horses in at night for them to practice on. Yeah. So every shoe they made was a specimen shoe. Because I didn't want to waste coal and steel having them stand in his forge I'd rather they swept the forge or painted it than made shoes all day. Yeah. That were never going on horses' yeah. feet. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing we have to remember is it's a very practical job. And the, the first thing out of maybe practical and theory, the practical part is the bit that matters, you know, in, in the sense that... That's I think it bit. all matters. It does. It does matter. But I think if you're slightly weaker on the theory, but you're stronger practically, that's okay. But if it's the other way around, that's where candidates struggle to, to reach the standard. That's my, you know, from, from examining, that's what I see. And uh, how many apprentices have you trained so far? <laughs> Not very many. <laughs> I think it's easy to remember. Yeah, yeah. Jim's trained 32. I've trained 31. <laughs> that's six, what, what that's quick, 63 what between us. I'll tell you what, I've got quick fire questions yeah. here. <laughs> so I'm going to ask both of you these, and I don't want any delays or prevaricating. What's your favourite nail? Mustard. Any particular number? Well, probably four. Liberty Hybrid, six. Oh. What's your favourite breed of horse? Uh, warm blood, I think. Uh, cob. Didn't say Clydesdale, eh? No. And, uh, <laughs> and what's your favourite make of shoe? It's Mustard at the moment. Are they paying you or something? No. And what's your favourite make of shoe, Handmade Jim? Champion. Handmade Champion, there we go. And well done, no prevaricating there. Uh, copper nails, do you both use copper nails? No, only when they send me the wrong ones. Okay. You don't get, you don't get owners saying, I want those pink nails. Rose Never. gold. Rose gold, are they? Okay, now, Jim, you are still going strong after 53 years. Do you have any future ambitions? To catch a £40 salmon. And what's the biggest salmon you've caught? 32. Well, you're in the ballpark, mm. so that, is, there, is this a realistic ambition? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. I'll keep you're my fingers crossed. You're chucking enough money at it, aren't you? Don't tell Hazel. So, and what's, what about you, future ambitions? Um, I think in a, in a, from a work point of view, there's, I'd definitely like to kind of, well, initially I'd like to re-establish a business and kind of get that up and running again as I was before. Um, so I'm quite, quite enjoying that. And I would like to do some more research, I think. Yeah, I think a master's would be the icing on the cake at some point. This is going public. You'll have a lot of people prodding <laughs> you. Yeah, a bit of pressure, oh. but yeah. Listen, I want to finish it there because we have had a good crack at it. I know I've got two or three questions still here or topics, but I think... Um, all of us probably need to prepare for tomorrow. We've got a big day tomorrow, a big clinic, 
And uh, but I want to thank both of you, Jim. You're the first person I've podcasted for a second time, and Mark, thanks for coming on. And uh, it's been great speaking to the both of you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Anything else I should have asked you about? No, it's good. That was an hour, by the way. Was it? Yeah. The pub's shut. <laughs>